Tonight on Fig Tree Watchers, we're going to be talking about some theological discussions that you may have had as questions. That's next here on Fig Tree Watchers, Theological Tuesday, a special edition. So stay tuned. That is next. We're discussing theology. It's always to know that it's about having the assurance of our faith. So what better than an old hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Well, invite your friends tonight to a special edition here on Tuesday night that we're doing called Theological Tuesday. I felt like it was uh, important that we discuss a couple of questions that have been coming up that people are having, and we want to kind of address them from a theological point of view. How are you doing, everyone? Let your friends know it is time for Fig Tree Watchers. This is my story. Love this song. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I love this one. Ah, oh, it's such a great one. You know, these hymns are awesome. And uh, I just praise God for them. You know? Ah, oh, man. Hey, Brother Io's on. Hey, Brother Io, do you want to come on and give uh, your testimony? What happened today to you? I think you should share this with everyone. Uh, just come on for a few minutes and share what happened. I think it would be great. If you'll say yes to that, I'll bring you right on. Because uh, I think everyone needs to hear this. It's a kind of cool story. What happened to you today? This is my story. This is my song. I love this song. This is my savior all the day long. I think I'm just getting caught up in the song, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. Amen. Ah, great song. Let me see if I... Oh, he must have disappeared on me. That brother I did. All right. Well, we got an interesting Anna's in the house. Well, you know what? Um, tonight, on here on Fig Tree Watchers, just want to remind you all that you can listen to the podcast of this tomorrow. Um, tonight, I, I wanted to address some discussions that have been coming up that I've been seeing a lot of, um, and these are kind of theological discussions. So if you'll bear with me tonight, uh, I think these are important to kind of share with you all um, because these really are uh, important in the understanding of our faith. And theology, first off, to those who don't know what that is, it is the study of God, right? And my theology, there's different views of it. You have Calvinist theology, you have Arminian theology. Um, My theology is biblically congruent theology. And uh, that is because my theology is based on multiple witnesses in the scripture. It has to be clear, it has to be concise, and it has to be based on witnesses. 
The Bible says that a matter is confirmed by two or more witnesses. So when we're having a theological discussion, we always need to go back to the Bible to understand it. Now, there are those who argue church fathers. But the problem is that the church fathers are not in the Bible. And I'm talking about, you know, those church fathers post what, what is written in the scripture. I admire them greatly. Clement of Rome, awesome guy. Ignatius, great guy. Love them. Read them. I study them. But they're not to be elevated above the scripture. And anyone who says that they are is actually uh, going against what scripture says. Because the scripture says we're not to add anything to the scripture or take anything from it. We get that from Deuteronomy. We get that from the book of Revelation. But the other group that comes in is, then they don't even take church fathers. They take a man-made theology, a premise, and they're like, this is supposed to be my theology. Well, that's wrong too when it contradicts scripture, when you can't find that in the scripture. So we're going to have a couple of interesting discussions tonight, some theological points that maybe you already know the answer to, but this is probably going to help you understand it in a more clear and concise way. So we're going to kind of go over some some interesting things here tonight. One of them uh, that I keep hearing and um, is this idea that Christ did not die um, on the cross for our punishment. Okay, and uh, someone I listen to that I disagree with a lot. Um, she brought up this point. And she said, "Well, if Christ died for our punishment, then why?" Are, why do we so, why do women still have uh, pain in childbirth? She brought up. So Christ didn't die for our punishment. Well, that's just not the correct way of looking at it. So without me saying my opinion here, why don't we look at what Scripture says? First off, when we're looking at this, we need to look at it from a biblical standpoint. We need to look at it from Scripture. All right. So. Christ died for our sins. That's fundamentally understood by us, right? We understand this, that Christ died for our sins. He was our penalty for sin, right? How do we know this? Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So when we talk about Christ died for our punishment, yeah, he did, what was the punishment? It was death. It's death. And that is the punishment that we face, is eternal death. How do we know this? Well, because John 3.16 gives the contrasting verse to that, right? Which is, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, to whosoever believeth in him, in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the contrasting verse, John 3.16. So we understand that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That yet to be born sinners, Christ died for us. Um, we understand this. So did Christ die for our punishment for our sins? Yes, because he, it is what Romans 6.23 is defining as that that is exactly what we need to understand. That it's the wages of sin leads to death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, let's look at this at a little bit deeper um, momentum here, if you don't mind. Okay? We know that um, in the scripture, 
okay, that Jesus came in the flesh and dwelt among us, right? And he was in the, in the beginning, he was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we understand that. Very critical. Um, why, who Jesus was, that he had to come because he was the only one that could pay for our sins. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit longer, more in just a minute. But what I really want you to look at is thinking about this. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your soul. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. So Christ had to come and be our atonement for our sins. Okay? Now here's the verse that every Christian needs to know, and it's Revelation 5.9. As they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Okay, this, by the way, is the most anti-limited atonement verse in all of scripture. It's so important. Revelation 5.9. Why? Because it's saying that Christ was a ransom for every tribe and language and people and nation. He became our ransom for sin. Okay? Listen to this. Okay? But with the first Peter 1 19, 4, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was the precious blood of Christ that had to be shed for the atonement, going back to Leviticus 17 11, for our sins. Okay? Hebrews 9 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Christ had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. Now this is so important because a lot of people still want to argue that they don't need to repent. But how can there be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins if you don't ask God to forgive you of your sins? And in order to ask God to forgive you of your sins, you have to turn from your sins. This is a, like a, a beyond basics of theology out of the scripture, right? Just turn from your sins. It's what Acts chapter 26 and Paul's reaccounting to King Agrippa. He's stating, he's telling you that Jesus gave him the, the, the mission to tell the people to turn from their sins. Okay, so Paul says, I obeyed the heavenly vi uh, vision that you gave me. That he gave me. And then he tells you later on in, in Acts chapter 26, that's exactly what he preached. So this is important. All right. But let's break it down even more. Let's get in more detail about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Most, the, one of the most fundamental sound verses for this theology. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Listen to what Paul is writing here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus had to become our sin offering so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How are we made righteous? In Christ Jesus. It's not anything we do on our own. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes that very clear. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith, uh, not by works, so that no man can boast. Okay, and then once again, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so I think we're getting this. Now, let's look at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, all right, let's really break this thing down. Sin came into the world through one man. What man? Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve. Now, let's look at the rest of this. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, here is that word all again that so many people just don't like looking at, all right? And I want I want you to examine this even deeper for a second. It's that word all, all. And I tell you people all the time, look, you need to do a word study on the word all in scripture. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the world, right? And death through sin, and so it was death that came to us through sin. So the punishment of our sin, the wages of our sin is death. So Paul's, uh, he's congruently arguing this throughout the New Testament. We saw, uh, and through the book of Romans, we saw this in Romans 6.23. Here we're in 5.12 and he's saying the same thing. Now he's telling you, and so death spread to all men. So the punishment of sin spread the, the death to all mankind because of sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And it's important. When was the law given? It was given under Moses in the book of Exodus. So sin had come into the world. Why? Through disobedience. What is sin? It's lawlessness. It's disobedience. It's rebellion against God. So this is important. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then I love this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. So what is he saying here? He's saying that through one man that sin entered into the world, one man, Jesus Christ, would abound for many. Now this is important because this is going to lead us to another theological discussion in a moment that we're going to have. And that is that when Jesus came, he was 100% man and 100% God. 100% man, 100% God. And we're going to see why this is so important in our theology in a little bit. We're going to look at this in just a minute. So we're looking at this, that Jesus was our trespass. Jesus was our trespass. He became our atonement for us. He made things right. So we're made right through Jesus Christ. Now we call this being justified by Christ. Problem is, a lot of people really don't understand what it means to be justified by Christ, that Christ was our justification because he became the trespass for us and he became the punishment for us. He became sin, okay, because we were sin. It was accounted to him for righteousness, Christ. Why? Because he was without sin. Christ himself did not sin. And it is in that fact that we know that Jesus is God. Why? Because he was tempted in every way, Hebrew says, yet he did not sin. So this is good stuff. We're understanding this uh, very clearly through the scripture. 
We're not looking at it through the interpretation of man. We're looking at it through the scripture and we're allowing scripture to interpret other scripture. One of the problems that I'm seeing a lot of like lately online is people are taking one verse, they're interpreting that verse and they're saying, well, that's the theology. No, we allow scripture, and this is biblically congruent theology, we allow scripture to interpret scripture. We utilize more witnesses in the scripture to build our theology on. We don't state what our theology is. The Bible states what our theology is. And we allow the witnesses of scripture to dictate that precept upon precept, line upon line. That's how we come to a sound biblical theology. We let scripture interpret it. So if I come out and say, Christ was our punishment, Christ became our punishment, so that we could be free from the, the wrath of God. How do I get to that? Well, very simply, we looked at Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, what was the gift of God, Jesus Christ, is eternal life for us. So we come to that through sound scripture. Well, that's one verse. Well, then we looked at the other scriptures, uh, Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So therefore, we look at this and going, okay, then Jesus became our sin. And we looked at the other verses that were in this. Uh, we looked at um, the uh, Revelation 5, 9, who says that for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we saw 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Christ died for us, okay? And so look at this, Hebrews 9.12, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for who? For us. For us. And that's why when we understand it, as Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So this is how we understand it. It goes back all the way to Leviticus seventeen eleven. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. So Christ became our physical atonement through the shedding of his blood so that we could be made righteous in Christ Jesus, not on our own, not by works, so that no man can boast. This is how we know biblically and through sound theology, utilizing witness upon witness, line upon line, precept upon precept, that Christ is our punishment, became our punishment for our sins. And he was also our atonement and our ransom on one, on one. And so therefore, it's not that the punishment of birth pains didn't go away with Jesus being our punishment. No, it was the punishment of death because the ultimate punishment for our sin, for the wages of sin, is death. It's death. So to the, that theology that's running amok right now all over Instagram and all over TikTok it's wrong. It's wrong. This is what sound biblical theology is, looking at it congruently through the scripture.
looking at it congruently. Okay, so let's look at the next one that I think is important. And that is, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Was he 100% man and is he God? All right, first thing that we have to understand is this. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, now this is so important. So in the beginning... Um, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if you read later on in John, it says nothing was made that was made without him. So all things were made, right? Now, this is important to understand this. Why am I bringing this up? Because if you fail to recognize that Jesus is God in your theology, it's going to mess you up on almost every other point in scripture. Let me give you an example. Um, Brother Io went um, up to a retreat this last weekend and the guy was having um, a discussion about uh, Genesis and he really the creation of the world. Was it old earth? Was it new earth? And he was leaning very much old earth and he was like saying, well, we evolved over time, right? We evolved over time. And Io confronted him, Brother Io, from, uh, that joins me on um, here on Fig Tree Watchers for Friday Night Prophecy and is my minister co-minister partner here on, on Fig Tree Watchers, he confronted the guy and he said, wait a moment, let's go look at a scripture from Matthew chapter 19. So let's look at it together right now. And we're going to understand why it's important to have a sound theology that Jesus it was both 100% man and 100% God. It says in uh, verse 4 of Matthew 19, and he answered and said to them, have you not read? And what is, what is he referring to when he says, have you not read? I love this. He's telling him, hey, knuckleheads, did you not read in the Old Testament, the scriptures, right? The scriptures of the Old Testament, right? That he made them at the beginning, made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All right, one flesh. So Io, brother Io reads a statement to him and says, wait a moment, look, John 1.1, 1, 1, it goes congruently with John 1.1, 1, 1, biblically congruent. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And later on in John, and nothing was made that was made without him. And now he's saying, listen, he at the beginning, beginning of what? Creation, beginning of creation in the first six days, right? Have you not read this? He made them at the beginning, made them male and female. God made them male and female. So who was it? Jesus, because nothing was made that was made without him. Jesus was there. Jesus was the, the life giver. All life comes from Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. All right? All life comes from Christ. Th this is so important to understand. Your salvation is life, eternal life. Where does it come from? Jesus, all right? Jesus is the life giver in all things. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. The bread of life, the building blocks of life itself. Nothing was made that was made without him. So nothing was made without Jesus, all right? Now, this is what was crazy about this what discussion the brother I had with the guy. The guy said, well, I'm having a hard time. This was a speaker at this conference. I'm having a hard time believing that. Believing that. Why? Because he believed in an evolutionary process. He couldn't believe it. And he said, and by the way, we don't really know if Jesus 
knew what he was talking about there. He told this to Brother Isle. Now, how do we know that Jesus knew? Because Jesus was an eyewitness to creation. He was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What does that mean? That when Jesus is saying, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning of creation, made them male and female, Jesus is saying, I was there. I'm an eyewitness to the count because I'm the one who created the biology. I'm the one who determined it. So Jesus is not speaking as a man at this point, although he is a man. He's speaking as God because he had the glory that was full of grace and truth from God, all truth. He had all truth. He did not eliminate his truth when he became man. He was the truth of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. His grace was still upon us. We beheld the glory of the only begotten Son. Right? Remember what Peter said to, to Jesus? He said, Lord, where am I to go? You contain the words of eternal life. Why does Jesus contain the words of eternal life? Because he is God. He is life. He is the light of men. Okay? And we, I mean, we know scriptures that talk about Jesus being God. We can go to Titus 2.13, waiting for the blessed hope and appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's emphatic. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Boom. End of sentence. It's Jesus. Jesus is both our great God and our Savior. So Jesus is God and Savior. Okay? At the same time. Okay, um, Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So Paul is arguing that when Christ was on the flesh, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Dwells bodily. Okay, we know this. We understand that. Christ is the visible form of the invisible God, Paul writes. Okay. And we know in 1 Corinthians 8.6, Yet there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. There it is. There's the proof. Well, how do we know? Because it's saying right there, whom all things and through whom we exist. Jesus is the life giver. The life giver. So we understand this and we behold, we. We grasp this and we, we get it. We understand it. I love this verse. This is the ultimate verse for me. It's Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I love that. That's a description of Jesus right there. It's Jesus saying it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. He is, who was and is to come the Almighty. And then we have John 1, 3, just to emphasize that again, that says, um, all things were made through him and without him, nothing, not anything made that was made. So without him was not anything made that was made. To quote the ESV right there. So we understand that, that Jesus was God. He created all things. He was responsible for things. And we're not seeing this through interpretation of man. 
We're seeing this through the interpretation of one scripture, building upon another scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, witness of the scripture upon witness of the scripture. This is sound, biblical, congruent theology. This is how we build our building blocks to our sound theology. And if we do it this way, we won't be deceived. We won't be deceived. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees, you err because you do not know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. And I would say to this man, you err because you don't know your scripture, and you nor do you believe in the power of God. You don't believe that God can create the world in six days. And on the seventh day, he can rest. You don't believe that because you don't believe that Jesus is God. Look, it's, it's fundamental here in understanding. I, I get in this argument all the time over repentance when people want to argue repentance with me, you're right? Why we should repent. And they're like, well, Jonah um, 3.10 was a physical salvation. It wasn't a, a, a spiritual salvation. Well, the problem is, is that Jesus says it was. Well, I don't believe that. Well, then you don't believe that Jesus is God because he was an eyewitness to the people of Nineveh repenting. Because guess who was going to bring the judgment down on them? Jesus was. The pre-incarnate Christ was going to bring judgment. Why? Because Jesus is the usher in of all judgment. How do we know that? Because we go to the book of Revelation. All judgment, all authority was given to him by God. Pre-incarnate, state and afterwards. God, Jesus is the one who opens up the scrolls. Jesus is the one that's responsible for the, after the scrolls open up, that the, the trumpets and the bowls and the vials are all opened up. It's Jesus. Why? Because he's our judge. And what does Revelation tell us? That we will judge with him, right? We will judge with him. How can, that, how can the uh, people of Nineveh who repented judge with Christ against the Pharisees? Because that's what Jesus said, right? They will stand over you in judgment, he tells the Pharisees, the people of Nineveh. Why? Because they were more righteous. They believed. They believed. They were saved spiritually. But people don't want to look at the scripture. They just want to like make up stuff. Oh, yeah, that was, that was a physical salvation. Well, that's not what the scripture says. By the eyewitness himself, Jesus Christ, who is God, who was there. He was in heaven as an eyewitness. Oh, okay. All right. I get it now. Oh, do you? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Because if you do, then stop questioning nonsense. Stop questioning the stuff that is, is, is absolute. Because Jesus has made it very clear. I am an eyewitness. I was there. I am God. I and the Father are one. We're one. And so when you come to that, you can come to the clear understanding that the word of God is true. Now, we know the word of God is true. How do we know? Two ways, right? We know that the word of God is true because of Bible prophecy, number one, Bible prophecy proves it. And number two, we know that the word of God is true because of the science of archaeology. That's right, science proves it. The science of archaeology. Since the 1800s, there have been 140,000 digs and counting regarding biblical archaeology. Not one of them has ever disproven the historicity of the Bible the historical accuracy of the Bible. In fact, today, Muslims, Jews, atheists, and Christians alike who do archaeology in the Holy Land and in biblical places, 
they will utilize the Bible to help them find what they're looking for. And sure enough, it's always there. We recently had the great discovery of um, the uh, little tablets, the judgment tablets. Well, the reason why they were looking for those judgment tablets was because they found Joshua's altar. Guess where they found it? Exactly where the Bible says it was, right? And here's the crazy thing. When they discovered that they found the plaster that the Bible says Joshua used on the altar. They can actually prove that. Oh yeah, it's altar. Now what, here's the exciting thing. This is the crazy part that nobody's really talking about. They're bringing imaging machines to this altar on Mount Abel. They're, they're having to get permission from the Palestinian Authority to do this because it's in the Palestinian side of Israel. And when these imaging machines look on these stones, they're actually going to be able to pull up the writing of the Ten Commandments that Joshua did, that according to Scripture, he did. He wrote on the stones. They're going to be able to bring up the imaging of that, which means we will have the Ten Commandments in the exact handwriting of Joshua himself. That, to me, is mind-blowing. Because it says Joshua wrote them himself. Can you imagine that? We will actually have writing from Joshua about the Ten Commandments. That, to me, just is... My mind just gets geeked up on that. That's just... And people want to say the Bible isn't true. Come on. Come on. Come on. Oh, man. We're going to be talking about this on Apologetic Saturday this week when Brother Io joins me. We're going to be talking about it. And, and we're going to give you some information that's just going to help you understand uh, big time. In fact, one of the questions we're going to ask on Apologetic Saturday, this Saturday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time is, how do you know that Jesus is God? How do you know? Now, we know it through the scripture, but we're going to give you absolute proof on this. It's going to be awesome. Okay? How do you know God exists? It's going to be another question we're going to answer. And it's going to be mind-blowing for you. I'm so excited about it. So when you're looking at these scriptures and you're Arguing a theological point. Number one, utilize witnesses within the scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. Don't take one verse out of context and build your theology on it. Have witnesses in the scripture to back up what you're saying. In fact, if you do it that way, then you can say this instead of, you can say this, according to the scriptures, this is what it says. How much stronger is that than, well, I believe, well, okay, I believe that donkeys fly. Great, you believe donkeys fly, congratulations. But that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> and here's the problem. Too many people are going to the phrase, I believe. Look, there's only one thing you believe. You either believe that Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead and you confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what you believe. Everything else is irrelevant. It really is. It really is. I believe in God and his holy word. Everything else is irrelevant. So stop arguing what you believe. Start arguing what the scripture says. By the way, you hold me to that standard 
I would greatly appreciate it. Because I keep telling you, don't follow me. Don't look at me as some cult leader. I'm not the next, you know, super preacher. I don't want to be that. I want to teach you what God's word says. And then you hold me accountable to that. You come back with me and say, wait a moment. That's not what the scripture says, Stefan. Test me according to the scripture. Test the spirits. Test the truth sayers, what Luke says, right? He says, go look at the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. It's the Stefan verse, the proof of your faith verse. It's the, the fig tree verse, right? Is what I'm saying according to the scripture? Because if it's not, shut me down, turn me off, leave me alone. Seriously. And hold me accountable to that. Test me. Challenge me. Wait a moment. Well, what about this verse right here? But come at me with the scripture. Because that's what I'm utilizing to build the theology. That to be a biblical, sound, biblical theologian. Where I'm congruent in my theology through witnesses of the scripture. That's where you need to be at all times. Uh, okay. Let's go over one more thing that I think is kind of cool. Because kind of talking about marriage and I want to bring this up for y'all. Um, give me one second because I think this is kind of be interesting if it allows me to do this. Oh yeah. Okay. So we're going to love this. All right. So this right here is real important and I want you guys to understand it. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to go into more deep discussion about this later on. The the first part of this picture, if you see it, um, is the Hebrew letters that represent man or husband. And on the second part of it, it represents uh, the Hebrew word for woman. Okay. Now, if you'll notice, there looks like there's an X there and, and kind of a W looking thing. It's like half a menorah. All right. Um, and then those two letters are the same. It looks like an X and a, and a half of the menorah, the right side of a menorah candle. Right. And then on the, the, the letters that represent the word man or husband, looks like there's a, an I. And then on the bottom one for woman is an N. Those are the only differences between the two. I want to show you something kind of cool with this as I pull this out for a second. Um, when you're looking at this, those Hebrew words, when you take out in the next picture... Is going to be this. You take out the I and the N, that represents God. So what it's saying is in between every man and every woman, every husband and every wife is God. God is there. Now, sharing this with you, because this is kind of a preview to the Gospel of Mark, where it says, um, he writes this thing. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this precept, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So why is God in between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife? Because God joined them. You're joined together 
by God. God is the glue that joins you together. Now, what happens if you remove, um, if you take the X and the N out of the man and the woman, which are the two commonalities, the, the two letters there that look like a menorah, I'm sorry, the menorah and the X, right? The right side of a menorah and the X. And you take them by themselves. This is interesting because these letters right there that you see at the bottom, they equal the consuming fire of God. That's what they mean. It means in Hebrew, the consuming fire of God, meaning destruction. The consuming fire of God is destruction. It's not something you want to mess around with. It's not the, the fire of the Holy Spirit. I want everyone to understand that. This means it's judgment. It's judgment. So if you remove God from the husband and the wife, what you have left is that right-handed menorah and the X, and that means you have consumed fire. It's destruction. So between every man and woman is God, and when you take God out of the equation, what you're left with is consumed fire from God. It's the judgment of destruction in your life. And you have divorce. You have ultimate divorce. Which is why in Mark, Jesus says, let therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. In the house, his disciples asked him again about the same manner. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she also commits adultery. So we know that this is what it's about. It's about adultery. And it's why God has to stay at the center so you never get to that stage. Never get to that stage. Now, biblically speaking, there are, there are two reasons, okay, that you can get a divorce biblically. One of them is not very popular, what I'm going to bring up. And people are going to hate me for it, and I understand that. But God gives us self-defense for a reason. To the husband, we are given a special commandment by God that we are to love our wife as Christ loved the church. Now, I know John MacArthur is going to disagree with me on this, but John MacArthur isn't following the scripture congruently. And I'm, I'm going to say this on this issue. I love John MacArthur. I think he's a great guy. I think he's a Christian. I don't think he's a heretic. I'm not saying that. I'm saying here I disagree with him on it fundamentally in the scripture. John MacArthur has been bringing up a lot that a woman has no right to leave her husband if the husband's hitting her and beating her. That is wrong. That is wrong. Number one, that's not grace. That's not the biblical definition of grace. Now, if you're going to use that and say, well, we had an argument, you know, he called me a couple of names. That's not what that is. Ta I'm talking about. I'm talking about the physical abuse of a woman is not to be tolerated in the house of God because, because the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? It means that Christ took the beating on himself. The husband is supposed to take the beating on himself. He's supposed to endure all things, the name calling, the persecution, the dishes being thrown in. He's to endure that all because he is the stronger vessel. He's a stronger vessel. But he is never to inflict that as a husband onto it. So when you have that, where the woman's life is physically endangered, he's broken the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And so that is one reason. The other reason is adultery, sex outside of marriage. Now, that is a, a, a real 
a real issue that I think is going on in America, and I think there's a problem in America right now, a sickness that is going on, and it is with adultery and with spousal abuse, with child abuse in there. The other thing is that a woman has a, a duty to, according to Proverbs 31, she has a duty to her children. She has a duty to teach her children the ways of the Lord that is right. If a child is being sexually abused in the household, God hates that. He actually hates it. Go read Proverbs. He hates the killing of innocent children, the harming of it. He says, it, Jesus said, it would be better for you to have a brimstone tied around your neck and dropped in the deepest part of the ocean than hurt one of these little ones. Hurt one of these little ones. So she has a duty at that moment to defend her children. She has that duty. Now, I will say this, and I'm going to say this absolutely clear. If a man does commit this act one time and he repents of it before God and there is a change as witnessed by others, it's witnessed by others, then I would say to that woman, you have a responsibility to go back to him and stay with him as long as he never does that again. Never does it again. I believe that by the power, supernatural power of God, God can change a man. But if he is a liar and he does it again, you're, you're, you're clear to go away. Just go, go away. But I would not go back to him until there is a clear witness supernatural change in the man. Or if you got a spousal wife who's a spousal abuser, I mean, it's, it's pretty bad too. I mean, I've seen that happen. Um, but there needs to be a complete witnessed by multiple witnesses of the change in this. And because a matter, according to Deuteronomy, a matter is confirmed by two or more witnesses. There needs to be this change. I'm going to go back into uh, uh, main picture mode here. I realize that this is not a popular teaching uh, because quite frankly, we've, swallowed for so long it's only divorce it's only divorce but that's not what the scripture says it's i mean it's only adultery it's only adultery that you can get a divorce for but it's not what it says it talks about this special accountability that husbands are to have over their, their wives is to love them as christ loved the church listen to this one you want to you want to hear this continued out even more in scripture here's a congruent verse for you in first peter listen to what it says let me go to first peter um, chapter three, I believe. Uh, let me go there. Okay. Uh, chapter three, verse seven. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wife, that's the them, with an understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, listen to what he's saying here. He First off, he's telling you, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with an understanding. Okay, one translation that says, live with them in an understanding manner, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Because you, you are the stronger vessel. You're supposed to endure all the punishment as Christ did for the church on the cross. So you're are the stronger vessel. She's not to receive the brunt of that abuse. You're to take it. 
because you're the stronger one as Christ loved the church. Do you understand this? The other way of, of seeing this very clearly in the picture here, the weaker vessel is like a Ming vase. She's a Ming vase. You are to honor her as the most absolute priceless object in your home that is fragile and, and, and is to be taken care of and is to be honored. The Ming vase goes in the China cabinet, is to be honored and protected. Are you honoring and protecting your wife in that manner? Okay. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that God bestows on you, the grace of life, not death, not harm, not persecution, not beating her down, not oppressing her, but the grace of life, life that comes from Jesus, right? That your prayers may not be hindered. You know, there's not a single verse in the Bible that tells women, hey, if you don't have sex with your husband, God's going to hinder your prayers. But it does tell us, you don't live in an understanding way of your wife and treat her in this honor. Man, husband, your prayer is not going to be answered. It'll be hindered. Whoa. That really stinks. I'll be honest with you. Many a times my prayers were hindered because I wasn't living in an understanding way of my wife. I had to go and go, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll go apologize to her right now. And I knew it. And I had to go and go before my wife and go, okay, listen, um, I was wrong. I don't want to admit it because I'm prideful and I'm arrogant. And, you know, I think I'm like, you know, the cat's meow around here. But really, you're the cat's meow. You're the, you're the top shelf Ming vase here in the relationship. And I want to honor you. But I didn't. I kind of said something I shouldn't have said. And so God's not answering my prayers right now because of it. And my wife will gently chastise me in a very loving manner and say, you know, oh, good. I'm glad God uh, smacked you upside the, the head sideways. You know, dope. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I admit it. But this is the congruency of scripture. So don't tell me that I'm the man of the house, I'm the spiritual leader, and you're going to do what I tell you to do. That's not what God told you. He's not. You're to take the brunt of it. You're to live in an understanding way of her so that God will answer your prayers because then you're living in the righteousness of Christ as Christ loved the church. Okay, let's take that verse out of the Bible. I want to change it. No, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. All right. Okay, just kidding. No, it's uncomfortable. And you know what? It's not a, it, it, this isn't a popular teaching. And you know what? This is one of those teaching that is not a good thing. It's just uncomfortable. Oh, there's my wife. She heard me talking. She's probably, she's laughing at this right now. So keep this in mind, guys. And that we need to be more Christ-like men. I'm going to tell you something else that I want you to understand. And, and I want to say this with the last couple minutes that I have left. Everyone who is a Christian, who really loves Jesus right now, is praying for revival to break out. They're, they're, they're crying out to God for 
America to be changed, for the revival to break across the land, for our government to change, for our political leaders to change, their hearts would change. Everyone's praying for this. True revival, when it breaks out throughout this country, throughout the history, when we look at it from a historical standpoint, it starts out with men coming to Christ in these great revivals. Do you know why the prayers are not being answered right now about revival? Because men are not living in an understanding way of their wives. And so God's not answering the prayers of men across this country because they're busy with addictions. They're busy with pornography. They're claiming to be godly, but they're not. You get rid of your addictions, you get rid of your pornography, you get rid of your, your lust for the things of this world and you start living in an understanding way of your wife and putting aside your hostility towards them. And we're gonna see revival because God will finally answer your prayers. Take that to the bank. Actually, take that to God. You can cash that one in. That's so uncomfortable for me to, to, to think about that. I, I really do. I, it makes me uncomfortable as I'll get out. Because every day, when I read that verse, I got to question it. Am I living in an understanding way of my wife? Man. More, uh, more times than not. Oh, wretched sinner that I am. I have to go to God and say, I'm sorry. And I have to go to my wife and say, I'm sorry. It's so difficult. We blow it all the time. As men. But it's the grace of God. Through the, what Christ did on the cross that he forgives us. That's why that verse in 1 John 1.10 is so important. Him who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Allow the truth of God to convict you and guide you. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you to all truth. And yes, Andrea, we will pray for him. We'll continue to pray for him, your husband. Let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you, God, for tonight. I hope that, Lord, um, this discussion tonight, um, as we went through Mark 10 and, and we went through some of the other theological discussions, Lord, that, God, you would help us, oh Lord, to get past what is obstructing us, oh Lord, that you would bring revival into the hearts of men, throughout this country and throughout the world, that you would change us into the, and refine us into the men that you want us to be, not the men that we want to be, that you would help us to break our addictions and our, our anger and our lusts so that we can live in an understanding way of our wives and honor you as you honored the church 
with taking on the abuse and the sin of all mankind. Thank you, Jesus. And we just pray, God, that you would help us men to walk righteously before you because of what Christ did in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you all. And uh, I wish you good night. And we will see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye, everyone. Oh, actually, we'll see you on Thursday. Take that back. We'll see you on Thursday. See you on Thursday for Topical Thursday. Bye, everyone.